Welcome, everyone, to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast. I'm your host, Craig. Today's episode is, well, we're going to be doing one of these compilation episodes, going to be looking at the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection. Um, For those of you who buy DVDs regularly, especially on Amazon, you'll probably be familiar with the Mill Creek Collections. Um, Mill Creek puts out a lot of collections with older movies and B-movies and just bad movies. So it's right up my alley. Um, These Mill Creek collections are typically 50 film collections. Um, So they have a sci-fi collection, which we're going to be talking about today. They have a um, horror collection. They have a cult collection, drive-in collection, and they have various other collections that are smaller. Oh, they also have like um, Fabulous 40s, uh, fucking awesome 50s. I don't know what they call it, but the 50s one. And um, they have various collections. So it's good stuff. Definitely right up my alley. Um, You get a lot of like kind of bad movies on these collections, but then some real gems. Uh, they're they're worth it. Anybody who wants to have a beefy DVD collection, um, grab yourself a couple of Mill, Mill Creek uh, compilations like this. Uh, that'll really beef up your collection. So I was going to do all 50 films in one episode, but that's coconuts. I, I can't do that. I had to reconsider. Um, just getting through with the sci-fi collection... I, you know, I start watching the films and I start um, taking my notes and going through and I realize I'm like, I, there's no way I can do all 50 films in, in one episode. It would be like a five hour episode. It would be ridiculous. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I could just do the decades because really the, the collections are like movies are from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, something like that. But it's all uneven, right? Most of them are right there and in the the fifties or the sixties or something. So it doesn't really work out. So I just said, okay, like, fine, we'll just, we'll do about 10 per episode. Um, that'll give me five episodes to cover one of these compilations. I have several of these compilations, so we'll get a lot of episodes out of it, which is great. And I thought, well, let's start with the, uh, the sci-fi collection. It's fun stuff. One of the things that I uh, do when I'm watching these videos is um, I like to come up with, you know, you got to come up with a methodology that that you can repeat, especially with a collection with 50 films. You you can't just watch it and be like, oh, I'll just take some notes and we'll talk about it. Like, that's that's too much. You got to have a a better method than that. So um, for each of the collections, what I did was... Um, I came up with, uh, so first I'm going to talk a little bit about for each movie, some information on, you know, who's in it, who directed it, who the distributor was. And, um, I'll give a little bit of a blurb from usually from Wikipedia, if they have anything about the movie, um, some background on it. And then I'll talk about what my thoughts were on watching the film. And then at the end of that, uh, I'm going to give it my rating or the verdict. Okay, not a rating. I I don't I I, I want to stay away from. I try and stay away from giving ratings on things. For one thing, it's super arbitrary, but also um, it's too specific. Um, so the verdict is is uh, it's one of these things. Okay, the verdict is skip it, watch it once, or rewatchable. That's it. 
um, because that's really what you need to know, right? Especially if you, the listener, uh, my one listener, is going to get a collection like this. Like you kind of want to know like, okay, should I even, if, if this is something that it's just, it's terrible, it's not worth it, I'll know I can skip it. Or if it's like, uh, it has some moments, mostly garbage, but then it's a watch it once. And if it's, hey, that, that was actually a lot better than expected, um, kind of enjoyed it, and it's worth watching again, then it gets the rewatchable verdict, okay? So hopefully that is a good way to tackle this. Now, before we get into it, I want to talk a bit about, I've brought this up on a previous episode, I don't remember which one it was, but um, if you are you know, around my age, so late 30s, early 40s, I'm early 40s, whatever. Um, but basically, you grew up in, the, in your formative years were in the 90s. So in the 90s, I was 13 to, to 23. That was me in the 90s. So I was born in 1977. So I was 13 in 90s, uh, in 1990 and then up to 23. So those are my formative years, right? My teen years, my high school years. One of the things from back then is that um, DVDs were in. So I got into DVDs a bit. And I'm used to having DVDs. I like DVDs. I don't do digital downloads really like um, through Amazon Prime or anything like that. I don't rent digital downloads and watch them that way. Because for my movies, like I, I buy them on DVD and then I, I rewatch a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And also I buy things and then I don't watch them for like a long time. Sometimes in several years, <laughs> honestly. Um, so I have DVDs and movies that I bought years ago that I haven't watched yet. That happens a lot. Anyways, um, so where am I going with all this? If you buy DVDs, one of the main pain points with DVDs um, is if you have a giant collection of DVDs, like even these Mill Creek collections, 50, 50 movies on 12 DVDs um, in a package. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to get up and put a new DVD in and look through it? Oh, there's there's four movies on this DVD. Let's look at them. Yeah, it looks okay. All right, let's take that out. Let's put it in the next disc, and let's see how that is. Yeah, take it out, look at it. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Uh, oh, I think I want to watch that movie, but what's on the next disc? This is too much. This is This is one of the real pain points with DVDs. So you have a big ikea storage unit full of dvds and you're looking through them and you you have to choose one take it out put it in your dvd player and then watch it well but what if you start watching it for a minute and you're like just you know that was fun but i want to watch something else so you got to take it out of the dvd player put it back in your storage unit grab something else put it in the dvd player this is a pain in the ass so what i do and, um, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who do this, but, um, and I wrote a post on it. Uh, so I'll link to that in my show notes, but basically I have set up a home media server. So that can sound daunting to people who, you know, are not techie, not an IT, whatever, but it's really not. And when people throw the word server in, I think it throws some people off. They're like, Ooh, that sounds really techie. I don't know if I could do that. But all it is is that you get yourself a, a desktop um, and you want to get a desktop because you're going to have to install software on it and have this running all the time. So that 
isn't really conducive to a laptop. It doesn't really work. So I have a desktop. It's just an old one I bought from my work, actually, when they were replacing some desktops with some laptops. So I bought it. I installed Windows 10 on it um, because it came with Windows 7 or something like that. So, and I, um, I installed Plex Media Server Software and more recently, MB Software. Um, I believe MD, MB is software you have to install and not just in the cloud. Anyways, it's in the, it's in the show notes, in the, in the post, all the exact details. But um, you install the software, the media server software, and basically what this does is on your home network, um, you can um, set up these media server software and um, you can connect to it from your other devices on your network. So on my laptop, I can connect to um, Plex Media Server and watch any of my movies in my collection. So what I do is um, you rip movies with ripping software. So you have a digital file of it, an MP4, and you load it into a folder, and then you create a library on your home media server software. So my Plex and my MB, I have these folders with all these movies in them and it's and then I create uh, a link to it and that's my my media that's my library of movies and then um, if you name the files correctly have the right syntax um, the MB media server or the Plex media server will go to the internet and get all the artwork and information for all the movies in your library so what you end up with is this Netflix-style um, home media server software that is all your media. Um, so it's actually kind of a cool setup. Now, you can take it even one step further, and you get yourself a Roku, and then you install the Plex Media Server app and the MB app, and now you can watch on your television... You can watch your your home Netflix essentially, um, your Plex Media Server and your your MB Media Server, which is all just your personal media, ripped into the libraries, and it's got all the artwork. It's mega cool. Once you have it set up, it's a lot to set up, but once it's set up, um, it's totally worth it. Especially when you're a real DVD enthusiast, you got lots of DVDs. You don't want to be switching around all the time. Yeah, I know that was a that was a lot of info. So if you're interested, go check out the post from the link in the show notes. And now let's get to the Mill Creek sci-fi collection. I'm gonna call it volume one, part one. How about part one? Part one of the five parts, and we'll go through it all. And we're gonna start with the movie The Lost Jungle from 1934. Yikes. All right, so Lost Jungle. Oh, by the way, I'm I'm going through these in um, chronological order. I always like to do chronological order whenever possible. Um, it's just the way I like to handle it. So, released June 13th, 1934. Woo! 68-minute runtime. Love that. Budget? No idea. Distribution? Distributed by Mascot Pictures. So, here's what Wikipedia had to say. It's a small blurb. The Lost Jungle, 1934, is a mascot movie serial. 
Yikes, that's not a good sign when they say it's a serial. A semi-sequel to this serial, Darkest Africa, was released by Republic Pictures in 1936. Republic was made from a merger of several companies, including Mascot, which became the B-Western and serial production arm of the company, as well as providing them with a studio. You'll notice it's also not a good sign when the Wikipedia page for the movie Lost Jungle has practically zero information about the movie Lost Jungle. Um, They really just talked about mascot pictures, how Darkest Africa, the next release, and and how they merge with another company. All right, let's get to it. So what are my thoughts about this film? So like they said, it's a serial. It it was a bit bizarre. It's, It's a bit hard to understand what's going on. Um... So they they quickly establish in Act 1 that this guy Clyde is good to animals while others are abusive. And he's a top-notch animal trainer. He's in love with a bleached blonde dame who looks like a human LOL doll. Uh, She wants a commitment from Clyde or she'll leave on a long journey on a ship. I don't know what's going on there. It's like, uh, you better commit to me or I'm going to get on this um, steamer ship and you won't see me for three years. And she's telling Clyde they're inter. Uh, okay, as she's telling Clyde all this, they're interrupted by an animal emergency, and that's basically her answer, right? Clyde can't. He's it's animals first, LOL doll second. So she splits, and um, all right. So act two, you know, it's I don't I don't know what it's hard to describe. There isn't really any, I don't really know what's going on in this movie most of the time. It seems like it's basically a showcase for this guy, Clyde, who is this super fantastic animal trainer. So this crazy fuck gets in a cage with uh, tigers and leopards and bears and lions all at once. <laughs> He's making them do tricks. It's very impressive. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's a long time ago, so it can, it seems sometimes like it's a little cruel to animals, but this guy seems, seems like he's very good with the animals actually. Um, like, don't get me wrong. It's not like this is, it's all cozy and cuddly and, and kisses and petting, but it's, um, like he has a whip and he has a gun just in case he has a chair that, but it's not as cruel as I thought it might be considering that it's 85 years ago. All right. Uh, so meanwhile, the blonde, her ship was in a storm and crippled. Um, now she's on a tropical island with the crew. There are lions and tigers there, fortunately. Um, they take refuge from the animals in a village. And then they send a note by carrier pigeon and Clyde gets the message. I don't know. Okay. Um, so Clyde's promoter arranges for Clyde to get to the island uh, with a film crew, <laughs> they take a Zeppelin. That is incredible. And it crashes on the, on the island. This is too much. Um, okay. So some guy named Sharky on Clyde's crew, he finds the quote buried city of Camor. Uh, and he's told about a treasure by a dying man. So the shipwreck crew is losing hope and threatens the captain with leaving. Hey, if they could leave, why don't they just leave? 
Okay, then a, a little girl uh, chases her pet lion cub out of the safety of the, the, the village compound. There's like, you know, big fences on it so the animals can't get in. She leaves the compound and she's going to be killed by a lion, but fortunately Clyde is wandering through the jungle with his promoter and he rescues her. All right, so now we're in Act 3. Now uh, Sharky, yeah, really... That's his name. Sharky sneaks into the village and lets loose the animals in an attempt to kill Clyde and everyone else. But Clyde deals with them and Sharky is killed in the process. Um, And then this crew, Clyde's crew, finds the map that Sharky had that shows the location of the buried city of Camor. And they head off to get it. And Clyde and Ruth uh, are together again. That's it. So, no, you can skip this one. That's the verdict. Uh, you know, not not that good. Unless you're like, look, uh, animals, animal trainer guy, that that's cool. I I could I'd like that. Then go for it. You should watch this one then. But really, it's only 68 minutes. So, if you want to just go for it, go for it. But I'm just saying if if that doesn't really interest you, psh, there's nothing here. This this is so old and this feels super old. It's bizarre. I don't know. The guy was in a Zeppelin. Come on, man. And she took like a steamer ship, not a steamer ship. I don't know, like a like a like a like a ship. She took a ship to get away from him. It was just weird. So, all right, that's that. I will say it's um it's a really bright black and white uh, movie with. You know, it's an old, this needs to be talked about. So some older movies, black and white movies, are, it's crisp. It's a good looking black and white. It looks beautiful. And uh, it's easy to, it's easy on the eyes. And it, it actually makes the movie seem cooler. A lot of movies are like that. Um, but those are movies that are more in the, the mid 40s and even early 50s. So um, one of the movies that struck me is, is like that. I might be remembering, misremembering this um is double indemnity. I think I remember that being like, uh, like seeming like a really cool black and white. When I say cool, I mean like the movie seemed really cool. Uh, the black and white, white seemed really crisp. The audio was good. This movie is not like that. Um, it's really poor quality. The image and sound is atrocious. Um, there's lots of animals fighting and like growling and rah, 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 all the time. It's, um, yeah, it's distracting. I think Ruth, uh, his lady friend, is the essentially the only woman in the movie. There may be another, you know, extra, a woman extra who appears in the movie, but there's definitely no other woman character. Um, now, Cecilia Parker, who played Ruth, is also in Frankenstein from 1931, which I have watched, but I'll talk about on some episode in the future. Um, so she's a... Uh, Attractive lady. All right, next movie. 11 Years into the Future, White Pongo from 1945. So this movie was uh, released on October 10th, 1945. 71 minutes. Budget, no idea. Distributed by, no idea. Okay. So here's what the Wikipedia had to say about this. White Pongo, also known as Adventure Unlimited, 
in the United Kingdom is a 1945 American film directed by Sam Newfield. In the jungles of the Belgian Congo, a group of natives are dancing around a great fire with a human sacrifice named Gunderson. They are attacked by an albino gorilla called the White Pongo. During the attack, an elderly scientist who lives with the tribe frees Gunderson and gives him his deceased colleague's diary that contains his findings on the white gorilla. Gunderson makes it through the jungle and arrives in a nearby settlement in a fever state. The diary has seemed to prove that the white gorilla of myth exists. That oh, Who cares? It's terrible. The plot is terrible. It's just, what is with these movies about jungles? I don't know why they have to do this. Like, stuff happens. Okay, here's my thoughts. Act 1, The Congo. A white missionist, my notes, I'm reading from my notes. A white missionary escapes a village where he's tied up. He sees a white gorilla during his escape, and he tells his imperialist friends who think it's the missing link, an ape containing human intelligence, because it's white, of course. And then Act 2, they travel to a village and find a missionary. Um, There's a love triangle between an elitist in the royal military the elitist daughter of the expedition leader, and a common military man in the expedition. The daughter is interested in the commoner, while the elitist is jealous and wants to prevent the daughter from getting involved with the commoner, who is beneath her. She really pursues the commoner, who is aloof but eventually opens up. So at one point, the elitist daughter kisses the commoner, and they get caught, um, on the expedition, the German expedition leader turns out to be evil because he's German and he is going to do something bad and the woman runs. The German shoots the elitist prick and chases the girl. The white pongo kills the German and captures the girl. And that spins us into Act 3. There's a big battle between the brown ape and the white pongo. Um, The commoner shoots the white pongo and they take him back to London. The commoner gets the girl in the end. What is the verdict? Skip it. Terrible. I don't really, like, I don't know what the deal is, but it seems like back in the 30s and the early 40s, I guess, I don't know, these sci-fi movies are all about the jungle. I guess because that was like an unexplored frontier and, it was exciting for people to think that, oh, what goes on in the jungle? It's pretty cool. What, what, what's happening there? Um, you don't see as much like space. I guess they hadn't had a space race yet. And anyway, so, so yeah, I have an extra note down here. Um, yeah, the white pongo actually, it looked great. Like the actual gorilla looked really good. Um, it was a dude in a gorilla suit, right? Um, and the whole movie was really about the relationship between the woman and the commoner. And the white pongo, although they call the movie that, that was really, really secondary. Um, that, that's fine. That's totally fine. Okay, next one. Yet another jungle movie. Queen of the Amazons, 1947. So January 15th, 1947. Running time. Love it. 60 minutes. That's it. Okay, budget. No idea. Distributed by... Screen Guild Productions, Inc. So here's what Wikipedia had to say. Queen of the Amazons is a 1947 adventure film directed by Edward Finney and featuring Robert Lowry, 
Patricia Morrison, and J. Edward Bromberg. Okay, I'm going to skip most of the uh, Wikipedia information about the plot. I'm going to skip to what I wrote about the plot, and we'll talk a little bit more about what my thoughts were. So Act 1, a woman has traveled to India to look for her missing fiancé. They get a tip and leave for Africa. So, okay, they're, they're in India looking for the fiancé, and a guy in a hotel gives them a tip that, no, you have to go to Africa to look for him. And then uh, they get to Africa. The guide there, he hates women. Um, he seems like he's going to be a love interest. So act two, um, they leave on a journey. A guy who disapproves of the guide and of the woman being on the safari joins them on the safari. He's there to get in the way of the developing relationship between the woman and the guide. So they learn that Greg, who's the fiancé, is being held prisoner by a, quote, white she-devil, and the guide gets attacked by a lion but is saved by the disapproving guy. Hmm. So the midpoint. Someone in the camp was murdered by a white man, but they don't know who. Now we get this total fox named Zeta, and she is the Amazon queen, and she is with Greg. They visit Zeta, and she says that Greg chooses to remain uh, with her of his own free will. There's a big battle, and in the end, Zeta marries Greg, and the woman marries the guide in like a simultaneous ceremony. Huh, didn't expect that. So what's the verdict? Skip it. Um, here's what I wrote down here. I, but the Zeta, oof, hot stuff. Um, I, here's what I wrote at the end. This seems like a lot of hubbub over some elitist prick who never came back from his precious safari. I'm getting sick of these jungle movies. Why are these in a sci-fi collection anyway? Um, these feel more like adventure. Can we get a Jules Verne adaptation? Yeah, it's true. Um, and I know I already brought this up that, um, yeah, it must have been like like the 50s was all going to space and aliens and uh, adventure and stuff like that. That must have been that's a 50s thing. I guess they had the space race and all that. But before that, it must have been jungle because it was kind of the unexplored frontier. Anyways, I'm not going to rehash that. Um, for the first 40 minutes of this film, I th I actually thought the title character, the Amazon queen, referred to the protagonist, the woman looking for her fiance. And um, the movie poster, which uh, you got to see, um, I thought the movie poster was really taking a liberty with the woman featured on the cover. Um, but now I realize that the woman featured on the cover is Zeta, that character. So at the beginning, a character said, this was good. Uh, the character said, what's the point to this expedition? Greg is either dead or he's decided not to come back. And I thought that was really astute. Um, it looks like the character was right and Greg did decide not to come back. Uh, but I wonder if the whole point of the film for the fiancé was closure. All right, so up next, Prehistoric Women. November 1st, 1950, this was released. The runtime was 74 minutes. It's good. Budget, no idea. Distributed by Eagle Lion Films. So what did uh, Wikipedia have to say? Prehistoric Women is a 1950 low-budget fantasy adventure film written and directed by Greg C. Tallis and starring 
Laurette Luez, and Alan Nixon. It also features Joan Swally, Judy Landon, and Mara Lynn. Released by Alliance Productions, the independent film was also titled The Virgin Goddess. The film was later distributed in the United States as a double feature with Man Beast. That sounds good. Prehistoric Women is similar to the 1940 film One Million B.C., a remake sometimes known as Slave Girls, was made in 1967 and starred Martine Beswick. So here's their summary of the movie in Wikipedia. Tigree, who is played by Louise, and her Stone Age friends, all of which are women, hate all men. However, she and her Amazon tribe see men as a necessary evil and capture them as potential husbands. Angor, played by Nixon, who is smarter than the rest of the men, is able to escape them. He discovers fire and battles an enormous beast. After he's recaptured by the women, he uses fire to drive off a dragon-like creature. Anyways, the women are impressed with him, including their prehistoric queen. Angor marries Tigri, and they begin a new, more civilized tribe. All right. So what are my thoughts on this? Had a lot of thoughts on this one because it's right up my alley. Um, because basically all the women are just pinup models, which I'm, I was loving. It's fantastic. Okay. So my thoughts. This movie is ahead of its time with having women take the lead and be the aggressors and capture the men. Um, as I said, most of the women... It's me reading from my notes. Most of the women are uh, pinup models, basically. It, it's This film is so subtly sexy. Uh, I think back then, if I was like a, a young teenager, I would have seen this film like 10 times in the theater. Uh, it was There was so much skin, and it was great. It was it really, they looked like they were wearing pinup model outfits. They had like short skirt type things on. They were busty and just incredible looking. It was great. So I have uh, bullet points here of sexy scenes. Um, so the women intros, they did women intros that were NFL style where they would show the person like a headshot and they would say who it was and talk a bit about her, <laughs> which is good. The women attack the men with rock slings. So they're swinging these rock slings around. That was super sexy. The women take the men to treehouse beds. That was, that was incredible. So the women live in like these tree houses and they, they like hitting the men and making them climb a ladder up to this tree house and humiliating them. It's very good. They, they take a midnight swim, um, which was, was good. Tigri and the blonde fight over Angor. So they have like a little you know, kind of row about it. That was, that was very good. Like they're rolling around, grabbing each other's hair. And Tigri at one point humiliates Angor with uh, the task to move the boulder. So there's a point when they have to move a boulder. And uh, I'll talk a bit about this later, about the men being portrayed as dumb. But this Angor guy, he's just trying to use his brute strength to move this boulder. And Tigri's like shaking her head at him and like humiliating him. And then she takes this uh, stick and uses it like a lever to move the boulder. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> what a scene. It was totally mocking the men. It was good. All right. 
So uh, getting into the uh, the actual nuts and bolts of the film. So under so act one under the moonlight, the women are engaging in a sexy ritualistic dance until exhaustion. The narrator introduces us to each of the women one by one. I've written here like NFL players on Sunday Night Football. Each shot is a close up of one of the heavy breathing beauties panting with exhaustion and the narrator tells us their names so the viewer can immediately identify the one he thinks is the hottest. Then we get a flashback to give us some backstory as to why they're a tribe of only women, why they distrust men, and we are told of the giant man Gwadi who wanders the jungle terrorizing all. And that's the end of the first 10 minutes. So the tribe of dudes is hunting a tiger, the women sneak up and capture the men. There's an unintentionally sexy scene where the women pummel the men uh, with rocks by swinging rock slings around their heads while wearing their prehistoric dresses, which are basically the dresses that Betty and Wilma wore. <laughs> the head dude, Angor, gets, uh, he gets away. The women head back to camp with their man slaves, and each woman takes a man up to her treehouse bedroom. Angor's people find him and bring him to their camp. So then we get Act 2. Weeks pass, and Angor has healed. His wounds have healed. He has vowed to retrieve his captured comrades, and he sets out to do so. He gets chased by an elephant. He discovers fire and uses it as a weapon. Uh, The women go for a sexy midnight swim, and afterwards, two of them are captured by Gwadi, the giant man. The women capture Angor and bring him back to camp, adding another he-bitch to their man stables. There, Angor is reunited with his male friends. Angor is going to be Tigri's man, and she takes him to her treehouse bed. A blonde woman in the camp has her eye on Angor. One of the great lines at 4923, as the women dance in the moonlight and the men watch from the treehouse beds of their women captors, the narrator says, the men look on with mixed emotions. (laughs) It was incredible. When drums and the women dance as Angor and the men look on with mixed emotions. Now, on the day that the marriage ceremonies are to take place, Angor starts a fire and uses a torch to fend off a huge bird. Then he captures the women. So, Act 3. So, now that the dudes are in charge, they treat the women like shit. Uh, and they deliberately demean them and humiliate them. But they eventually ease up a bit and head back to Angor's home in the mountains. But on their way back, they encounter Gwadi, who corners them in a cave. Angor orchestrates their escape using torches. Uh, They encircle Gwadi within a ring of fire, and they burn him alive. Oof. The men and women pair off, and the old woman performs the marriage ceremony. The end. Okay, so what's the verdict? So I kind of already gave it away. Um, definitely watch this one. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to put watch it once, but um, for me, it's rewatchable. I, I have watched it a few times. Um, 
yeah, if you like pinup models, it's definitely rewatchable. Otherwise, though, it's it's decent. It's kind of fun. It's a different format than what you're used to if you're used to seeing modern movies. I mean, the the entire movie's narrated, which is bizarre, um, and nobody talks. Like the, you'll hear them making sounds and stuff, but they don't really talk. Um, another couple thoughts I had about this is, um, is this meant to be a commentary on life? Um, I'm, the women are horny and smart and they fight amongst themselves, right? They fight with each other. The men are oafs, but ultimately having the better technology leads to dominance. My other question is, did any of these actresses go on to become pinup models? Because they should. All right, next one up, Bride of the Gorilla, released October 24th, 1951. Runtime, 70 minutes. That's good. Distributed by Jack Broder Productions, Inc. Broder? Broder? Something like that. Here's what Wikipedia had to say. Bride of the Gorilla is a 1951 horror B-movie film directed by Kurt Soydmack and starring Raymond Burr, Lon Chaney Jr., Barbara Payton, and Tom Conway. Deep in the South, South American jungles, plantation manager Barney Chavez Burr kills his elderly employer in order to get to his beautiful wife, Dinah Van Gelder Payton. However, old native witch Al Long uh, anyways, witnesses the crime and puts a curse on Barney, who soon finds himself turning nightly into a rampaging gorilla. When a wise but superstitious police commissioner uh, is brought in to investigate the plantation's owner's death and a rash of strange animal killings, he begins to suspect that all is not as it seems. Dinah is also becoming suspicious of Barney, who seems to be more in love with the jungle than with her. She follows him one night into the jungle, only to be attacked. I'm not going to give away the end. We'll talk about that later. The film was shot in 10 days. Edward G. Robinson Jr., the son of Edward G. Robinson, was originally cast in the film but was fired by the producers after his arrest for writing a bad check for $138 to the Laguana Beach Garage. The gorilla of the movie's title only appears in the last few minutes of the film. The film's working title was The Face in the Water. Kurt Soydmack considered switching the roles of Lon Chaney Jr. and Raymond Burr, but because of Chaney's deteriorating appearance, appearance the idea was dropped. Weird about the uh, son of uh, Edward G. Robinson. It's a, it's a weird little story. I didn't really know you could get arrested for writing a bad check. I guess checks are a weird thing. When I first started working in retail, when I was 16, so in the early 90s, pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure we didn't accept checks. But I remember being a kid and being in the lineup when my mom was buying stuff at you know, grocery stores or Canadian Tire or something like that. And I remember people paying by check, which is just totally effed up. Um, so I guess it, it was just kind of leaving the scene as I was coming of age. All right, so let's get to it. Um, so this movie, oh, by the way, Edward G. Robinson, um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes here, but he's got a very interesting biography so his wikipedia page is pretty cool okay so my thoughts i'm gonna go through what i had written about the the movie 
So a wealthy businessman and his wife, Dinah, Barbara Payton, live on a plantation in the Amazon. The manager of the plantation, Raymond Burr, whose name is Barney, and Dinah have an unspoken feelings. And when the businessman fires the manager, Dinah asks Barney not to go. I want to be treated right, that's all. Just because he has money doesn't mean he owns me. Don't go away. Don't leave. That's all I need to know. So the servant girl is also in a relationship with Barney, but he breaks up with her. So Barney confronts the businessman and tells him that he and Dinah are in love, and then he kills the businessman by knocking him to the ground and letting him get bitten by a snake. So an old woman who is friends with the servant girl um, witnessed the murder and she puts a curse on Barney. So now into act two, Barney and Dinah get married, but Barney begins slowly turning into a gorilla. So physically he begins looking like a gorilla, his hands, they get all hairy. He goes out in the jungle alone at night and he kills. And then we get to the midpoint. The doctor suspects that Barney, uh, murdered the businessman. The sheriff also thinks Barty murdered the businessman, and he knows that they cannot convict him, but the jungle will bring Barney to justice. It might be his conscience that's driving him out of his mind. He likes the jungle. Believing that he's an animal, he thinks he has the right to kill. Sooner or later, he'll turn against you. I'm not afraid. But don't you understand? As long as you are alive, you will remind him of his crime. I told you. I'm not afraid. It's my duty as a doctor to have him placed behind bars. Your duty or your desire? You want to get rid of Barney. You're in love with me, aren't you, Viet? Yes. Since the first day, Klaus brought you to his house. I'm sorry. Don't you understand that I can't live without Barney? We belong together. Is my husband better? Or for worse? So there are some killings that get blamed on the Sukarat. Dinah and Barney decide to leave for Rio, but Barney changes his mind. Meanwhile, the doctor thinks that Barney's been poisoned, but Barney refuses to be examined. The doctor warns Dinah that Barney will come after her. Barney tells Dinah to leave, but she won't. Barney goes back to the jungle and Dinah follows. The doctor and the sheriff discover the plant that the old woman used to poison Barney and go into the jungle after Barney. They shoot Barney and rescue Dinah. So there's a voiceover um, by the sheriff that says the jungle punished Barney for his crime. So Dinah, Barbara Payton, plays a much more central role in the second half of the film. And she looks good. She looks a bit like Alicia Cuthbert. Very good. Very good. So the verdict on this one, yeah, watch it once. It's worth it to watch it once. Again, I'm not, I'm going to stop bringing it up, but another goddamn jungle movie. Like, holy Christ, can we move on from the jungle movies? So let's get to the next one. Um, now here we go. Unknown World, 1951. Now this one feels a little more sci-fi, so we'll get into this. So released October 26, 1951, 
Runtime, 74 minutes. Budget, who knows? Distributed by Lippert Pictures, Inc. So Unknown World, also known as Night Without Stars, is it? Okay. Uh, where? I didn't see this printed anywhere. Um, okay, it's a 1951 independent black and white science fiction adventure film directed by Terry O. Morse and starring Bruce Kellogg, Marilyn Nash, Jim Bannon, and Otto Waldis. Distributed by Lippert Pictures. It was produced by Irving. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so here are my thoughts. So there's the threat of nuclear annihilation. A brilliant scientist declares that the world will be destroyed if there is a nuclear war. Yeah, no shit. Hey, that makes him brilliant. What should we do? Uh, this is his solution. We build a burrowing tank and dig deep into Earth's interior. Uh, but where will you get the funding, Mr. Scientist? Some son-of-a-prick newspaper mogul decides to fund the project on a lark. This is, the world doesn't change, does it? Does it really? Does it change? I mean, they say, well, there's going to be a nuclear war. Like, we're, we're running hot here, and uh, there it could be a nuclear war. And, well, what are we going to do? And some scientist thinks, well, well, we'll dig into the, we'll dig underground, which is ridiculous. But, and, the, you know, oh, it's going to be expensive. How are we going to pay for that? And then some prick comes along, some billionaire prick and funds it. Like this, this, this could have been written today. <laughs> okay. So end of the first 10 minutes. So now they ascend to the peak of a volcano. Okay. And enter the earth from there. Isn't there lava in there? So, okay. A couple miles in. They find a tunnel. A tunnel? Like what? Was there some creature digging a tunnel in there? Like why is there a tunnel? Okay, a hundred, now in Act 2, a hundred miles down, they have a philosophical discussion about the unreality of being in the earth and being removed from nature. Now that's kind of cool. And the depression that they are feeling. Two of the men venture out ahead of the tank and are killed by toxic gases. Um, they run out of water and have to search for some. They release some steam and it condenses into water. That was kind of cool too. Um, yeah, they release some steam from the ground and it condenses on the ceiling of this cavern they're in into water. They have a discussion and a vote about whether to go out, uh, sorry, to go on or to go back and they decide to go on. So then at 960 miles down, they reach an open cavern with a lake. So it's basically like the outside world. Um, it's kind of cool. Cavern is desolate compared to the surface, and it's not what they had hoped it would be. But they go on, and at 1,640 miles, they reach a grand cavern with a waterfall, a sea, a sky with clouds. Unfortunately, they learn that all animals born in the cavern are sterile, and so humanity cannot survive in the cavern. They somehow end up in the deep ocean and make their way back to the surface. So this one's weird, um, but really some fascinating ideas. I don't know, you know, obviously digging down into the earth, like, come on. Um, and the fact that like it didn't get hot, like ridiculously hot for them, 
uh, the pressure didn't become a real issue, but you can forgive all that. It's, it's a silly sci-fi. Um, and it's back in an era when people didn't know as much general science it just wasn't in, in the news or in the culture. So that's okay. So it's kind of fun. I did like, it was pretty cool that they, they ended up in this big, uh, cavern with this lake and a sky and it was just like the outside world. Um, it's kind of neat. Anyways, uh, The Verdict. Watch it once. Definitely worth watching once. Now, this is on another Mill Creek collection, and maybe it doesn't deserve to be. It's on the Worst of the Worst collection, or the Best of the Worst, whatever they call it, which is a collection of 12 DVDs that are um, meant to be some of the worst movies that have ever been made. This is one of them. I thought it was pretty good, to be honest. Um, Yeah. So watch this one. You don't have to watch it a bunch of times, but check it out. It's worth it for sure. Next one, Planet Outlaws, 1953. So released October 26, 1951, I have written here. Um, I think the American released 1953, but anyways, that's up for dispute. Some of this stuff is the um, these films, the Wikipedia and the um, moviedatabase.org. Some of the details are not consistent so it isn't always a case that that we have the right release date Um, i generally go with what is printed on one of those websites Um, yeah anyways distribution distributed by goodwill pictures inc okay here's what wikipedia had to say buck rogers is a 1939 universal serial film starring buster crab who had previously played the title character in two Flash Gordon serials and would return for a third in 1940. This is a serial, another serial. So it's like a smaller episodes and they jam it all in, like they jam three or four of them in and just make a movie out of it. And um, unless you watch this, well, let's just get into my thoughts. Here's what I said. I said, I can appreciate that this is a wild sci-fi with cheesy props, crazy outfits, not well thought out ideas about the future, like the gramophone that appeared next to the air traffic controller, or Saturn, a gas giant, being a regional superpower. But I just felt like I had no idea what was happening, or who anybody was, and I couldn't follow the plot, or what was happening from scene to scene. It was really confusing, that when we moved to a new scene, I didn't know if this was a new episode or if it was related to the previous scene. Um, If this was made in the 70s or 80s, I probably would love it. It would be a bit different, a bit more modern. The outfits consist of boots, tights, big belts, a cape for important officers, a cloth wrestling football-style helmet. Buster Crab, he's a... It's a very handsome fella, got a crazy name, and my ultimate thought is, like, look, if you watch these serials when you were young, so if you're super old and you used to watch these when you were young, then you may feel differently, you may feel some nostalgia for this, um, but if you're me, you can't skip this one fast enough. And that, my friends, finishes the story of Killer Kane, the man who wanted to conquer the world. No less ruthless, no less cunning, no less a danger to civilization than the very real enemy that threatens the world today. Let us hope.
that the scientists of the free world will devise the weapons and the craft that will make democracy invincible against any enemy. God bless America. Not doing it for me. Okay. Phantom from Space, 1953. So this one um, was released May 15th, 1953. The running time was 73 minutes. Um, distributed by United Artists. So Wikipedia had to say this. Phantom from Space, a 1953 independently made American black and white science fiction film produced and directed by W. Lee Wilder. It stars Ted Cooper, Noreen Nash, Dick Sands, and Burt Wenland. The original screenplay was written by William Rayner and Miles Wilder. Working with most of the same crew, this one, uh, this was one of several early 1950 films made by Wilder and Sons Miles on a financing for distribution basis with United Artists and on occasion RKO Radio Pictures. So here are my thoughts. Um, this one feels like a propaganda piece for the U.S. national security state on MSNBC. The Air Force, the Navy, and Coast Guard all patrolling as if there is a need for constant vigilance in protecting against invaders and therefore justification for the hugely inflated military budget. Then, after the alien lands and escapes on foot, the police take over and they are arrogant and accusatory without evidence flipping the burden of proof so that it becomes your onus to prove that you are innocent rather than the police having to prove that someone is guilty. There's a mix of action and narration. It's not very compelling beyond the propaganda. Uh, an invisible alien is on the run. In the end, they can't communicate with him and he is killed accidentally and then he becomes visible. So what's the verdict? Skip it. Next one. Mesa of Lost Women. So released June, uh, June 17th, 1953. Runtime, 70 minutes. I like that. Budget, no idea. Distributed by Howco Productions. So Wikipedia had a lot to say about this one. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit here. So Mesa of Lost Women is a 1953 American low-budget black and white science fiction film directed by Ron Ormond and Herbert Tevos from a screenplay by the latter and Orville H. Hampton. So you can read the Wikipedia blurb if you want a bunch more information about it. Um, I'm just going to talk about my thoughts on it. So there is a constant flamenco guitar strumming and plonk piano background music. It's used to break up the silence in the long no dialogue scenes with some narration scenes early on. So the lead actress, Tandra Quinn, is incredibly foxy. Incredibly foxy. She doesn't wear shoes or speak and wears the same dress during the entire film. Um, she's way too sexy to have a speaking part. That would distract from why she's really there. She's there to be dead sexy and alluring and give dudes a reason to see the film 
that is otherwise mostly incoherent. The signature scene in the film is at 24 minutes, where she dances a sexy Austin Powers-esque dance in a bar. So the constant strumming flamenco guitar and plonk piano seem to be underscoring in the film, so only heard for, uh, by the viewer of the film and not, not as a part of the reality of the film. Okay, But in the dance scene, it seemed to actually be diegetic. Is that what they call it? So heard by the characters in the film. That was a, a curious inconsistency. It's kind of disconcerting because you're watching the film, you hear the music, you're like, okay, yeah, I hear that music. You're thinking, you're not thinking about it too much, but it seems like, yeah, I hear that music. That's pretty clear. But then when they're in the bar, she starts dancing to it. You're like, what? Have they been hearing this music the whole time while they're in the desert and, <laughs> and whatnot? Okay. The idea of the film seems to be that a scientist combines hexapods. Um, okay, so are spiders even hexapods? He combines hexapods and humans. It's basically spiders and humans. But there's other ones too. I think he did some other creatures. I don't know. Anyways, the result is women who are strong, resilient, and incredibly foxy while the men become feeble dwarves. I think the scientists mentioned that Tandra's character could live for hundreds of years and take over the world at his bidding. Um, I got a bit lost with the plot after that. Some guy shoots Tandra's character in the dance scene, then takes hostages, and the hostages and the guy, they leave and they board a plane and then they have an emergency landing in the wilderness near the scientist Mesa of hot women in Mexico. The scientist lab and all the lovely ladies are blown up in the end. So you can watch this one once. That's the verdict. Okay, Killers from Space. Released January 23rd, 1954. Runtime, 71 minutes. Budget, no idea. Distribution, RKO, Radio Pictures. So, Killers from Space, from Wikipedia, uh, a.k.a. The Man Who Saved the Earth, is a 1954 independently made American black and white science fiction film produced and directed by W. Lee Wilder, brother of Billy Wilder. It stars Peter Graves. Oh, yeah, Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Barbara Bester, Frank it doesn't matter. Um, the original, the film originated as a commissioned screenplay from Wilder's son, Miles Wilder, and their regular co collaborator, William Rayner. Uh, Lee Wilder's production company, Planet Film Plays, usually producing on a financing for distribution basis for United Artists, wound up making this film for RKO Radio Pictures distribution. Um, so Wikipedia has a pretty good summary of the movie i'm going to just skip that and get to my own you can always read that in the show notes if you want so this is more american military and police state propaganda the military is running a nuclear test when a jet sent to review the site crashes and the pilots are killed later one of the pilots appears alive on the military base Turns out he was revived by some aliens with big, bugged-out eyes. 
It's at 34 minutes. The pilot slash doctor has a conversation with the aliens where the alien explains the whole backstory. The alien's son is dying and they are going to invade Earth and make it their new home. Apparently they have the bugged out eyes because their world was getting darker and their appearance physically adapted to compensate. Okay. The aliens are going to use huge mutant Earth cockroaches, spiders, and otherwise creepy small animals and insects to exterminate the human race. Yikes! Once the animals have served their purpose, they will be burned in order to fertilize the soil. The aliens look ridiculous. The explanation for the bugged out eyes is completely implausible. I did like the -the over-the-top evil plan to use mutant creepy crawlies to eat the human race. Um, You can watch this one once, I'll say. Yeah, and that's it. So that's the end of part one of this five-part series. Um, So next time, we'll review movies 11 through 20. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy-dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PT Pod. The intro music for today's episode was Sweeter Vermouth, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Check out the link in the show notes. Thank <laughs> you.